Hello, I'm James Hurst and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, Britain, America and Australia feel France's fury, but will there be any long-term damage from their new defence pact? Donnez-moi un break. This is uh, fundamentally a, a great step forward for global security. How the West is losing ground to rivals intervening in conflicts worldwide. The US and its allies are war-weary. They didn't really win in Iraq. They've lost in Afghanistan. And 40 years after independence, why more British troops could be heading to Belize. We're the uh, only toehold here in the Americas, really. It's a great opportunity if we've got soldiers here to be able to take our place and play our part in supporting our host nation. It is fair to say France remains angry after the announcement of a new defence pact between Britain, the US and Australia. Paris recalled its ambassadors from Washington and Canberra, while the French defence minister called the scrapping of its own submarine deal with Australia a stab in the back. The UK's defence secretary insisted there was absolutely no intent to drive a wedge between the UK and France, but the Prime Minister, deploying his best franglais, said the French needed to get a grip. Donnez-moi un break, uh, because this is uh, fundamentally a, a great step forward for global security. Uh, it's three very like-minded allies standing shoulder to shoulder, creating a, a new partnership for the sharing of, of technology. It is not exclusive. Uh, it is not trying to, to shoulder anybody out. Well, we will examine how much damage this really has done and how long-lasting that damage is. But before that, I want to look at how we got to this point and why. And joining us to discuss that, Lord Ricketts, who went from being the UK's National Security Advisor to becoming our ambassador in France. Uh, Lord Ricketts, is it fair to say that a big part of the French fury is because they were blindsided by this announcement? Yes, and this is not just French anger. This is a deep sense of bitterness and betrayal because France had also seen their arms deal with Australia for the submarines as part of a strategic partnership and had already begun to plan a series of exercises as part of a French move to give higher priority to the Indo-Pacific, which is what they thought their American allies wanted. And so not only to find that the arms deal had been scrapped, but Australia seemed to have thrown away this idea of a strategic partnership. And in particular, that the alternative um, had been cooked up in secret behind their back by two NATO allies, the US and the UK, with Australia, and then announced with little or no notice to them, was deeply humiliating to President Macron, who of course is facing an election year in France. So there will be lasting damage from this, I think. They will see it as something of a turning point, and they will be recalibrating the way they think about defence and security. How did the UK, US and Australia manage to keep this so entirely secret? Would that have been standard practice in in negotiations like this to, to have it so tightly nailed down? Well, I, I can't think of a precedent where Britain and the US will have been keeping such a deep secret from one of their closest allies, because the secrecy was essentially uh, to protect the French from finding out about these negotiations. I mean, the way they did it, I guess, is to have a very, very small number of people. I think 10 people has been mentioned in the UK in uh, a, a security compartment. 
Of course, that also means that very few people got to um, advise on how to handle this. And I suspect nobody with experience of dealing with France was involved. And everyone saw this as a, a, a just an arms deal that the French would be angry but get over it and failed to understand the strategic significance of this for France and how it played into a wider concern about the Americans turning away from Europe and European security uh, and therefore the need to prioritize their relations with Europe. I don't think that angle was properly taken into consideration at all. Does France then have some justification for its anger? Well, I think the French feel that they were lied to. Uh, and that's a very uncomfortable feeling between allies. Um, and so, as I say, I think this will have uh, lasting implications. It was the manner in which it was done which was humiliating. Of course, Australia has the sovereign right to decide um, to uh, procure another armed system uh, given changing threats in their region. But the manner in which it is done, coming on top of the humiliating Western withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think leaves deep scars in Paris. It does appear that the anger is beginning to subside. We know that President Biden and France's Emmanuel Macron have spoken. President Biden has admitted uh, that the deal could have been handled better. This is what the White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki said after last night's phone call. In terms of the tone of the call, uh, it was uh, friendly. It was one where uh, we're hopeful and the president is hopeful. This is a step in returning to normal in a long, important, abiding relationship that the United States has with France. Uh, it was about 30 minutes long. Well, let's also bring in Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Mike, how damaging do you think this has been in the long term? Well, I think, as Lord Rickett said, I mean, in the long term, this will take some getting over, partly because it looks like Britain, again, opting for its Anglosphere uh, links as opposed to its European links. And in reality, we have to try to, to operate in both spheres with equal commitment. It's difficult to see how Britain might have done things differently, given that this was a, an Australia-US initiative that was secret between them and therefore we had to, as it were, go along with it. And one would have said, well, if the boot had been on the other foot, would the French have behaved similarly? And they probably, the answer is yes, because this goes back to the, the secrecy between Australia and the United States. I mean, Britain was just, the, in a way, the facilitator of all of this uh, arrangement. But I have to say, I mean, the Prime Minister's tone, you know, get over it and move on, is not very helpful because there is a, a fair bit of, of reconstruction to do here. And Britain has got to show its NATO allies that it is not, as it were, swanning away to a, a global destination um, without thinking carefully, very carefully, about its relationship uh, with its European partners on things which are much closer to us. The signs of uh, trying to reduce some of the anger that we've seen from President Biden with a very careful, respectful conversation with President Macron, admitting that this could have been done better, the French could have been consulted in an earlier stage. We don't see that from the British Prime Minister. Instead, we see mockery. And that is the last thing we need to do now, with the French feeling raw uh, and that their allies have betrayed them, to then see them being mocked by the British Prime Minister. I simply don't understand the logic of that. We need to, over time, find ways of involving France as a useful ally in Indo-Pacific policy. And I think that starts by taking French concerns seriously. There has also been, even before this, growing talk again of new EU defence structures at, at, at the far end, perhaps even an EU army. 
how much does this row add fuel to that and how realistic do you think it is that the the eu is now going to build up its own defense capability I mean, the french have been pressing for what they call european strategic autonomy for years and this will give that campaign a further boost um, and if strategic autonomy means europe having the military capacity to stand more on its own feet do more for itself not always depend on the americans then that should be a good thing and britain should be part of it um, if it means um, building up europe as an alternative one day and replacing the american security guarantee of europe then of course that's an extremely bad idea and most other european countries would not support that but i think it, it will give energy to the idea that uh, washington is becoming a less dependable ally for the europeans um, it's turning away towards Asia-Pacific, and therefore, yes, the Europeans should be doing more to strengthen their own capacities. Mike Clark, is the real damage of this the fact that it is Western allies rowing very publicly when when a, a, a spat like this would normally have been kept behind closed doors? Yes, and, and what worries some of us about this sort of thing, in the old days, the good old days of the Cold War, I mean, NATO had a sort of self-writing mechanism. Whenever there was a row, there was a rush to, to sort it out and the, and the ship would come back upright again. The danger with these sorts of rows is that they may become cumulative and that one row just makes the next row I mean, even more difficult. But what it really emphasizes and will continue to emphasize for years to come is the fact that Europe is not the United States's first concern. I mean, we all, we all know that, but this sort of, of crisis, this sort of inter-allied crisis, is a milestone in that journey uh, that the Europeans, and Macron is absolutely right, the Europeans have got to decide how much strategic autonomy they think they need to have because we will not be going back to a transatlantic relationship of the sort that we, we had during the Cold War. I think this is Emmanuel Macron finding that an important strategic relationship he was trying to build with Australia, which he thought was in line with what America wanted European countries to be doing, has been dumped unceremoniously uh, with an American-British takeover. And as Professor Clark says, this is going to be you know, one of those moments which people refer back to as a bit of a turning point. Lord Ricketts, thanks for your time today. This is Sitrap. The future role of the West on the world stage is one of the issues dominating discussion among world leaders gathered for the UN General Assembly this week. But a new report is warning of the West's waning dominance as armed conflicts hit a record high. The International Institute for Strategic Studies has published its annual armed conflict survey, highlighting a surge in the number of displaced people and a rise of what it calls middle powers. Retired Army Brigadier Ben Barry is a senior fellow for land warfare at the IISS, and he told me that as major Western powers step back, others are moving to fill the gaps. Russia. Russia's uh, been involved in the Central African Republic, uh, Russia is also um, involved in the war in Nagorno-Karabakh and now has peacekeepers there. It's been involved in Turkey and, of course, it's been involved in stirring up uh, the conflict in eastern Ukraine. And it's got a major stake in the conflict in Syria. It wasn't involved in any of those 10 years ago. Uh, Turkey's become very activist. We've also had the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen. Uh, which still continues, albeit with the UAE, who's prominent in the initial intervention, uh, uh, largely withdrawing. So we're seeing smaller countries getting more involved in internal conflicts while the West pulls back. 
has this got a connection with a decline in Western power? Is it a sign of decline in Western power? Is it a factor of decline in Western power? Or should we not read anything about the state of Western power into this? Western power has not particularly declined. Uh, the US is still spending an enormous amount of defence and still has very large armed forces. But the US and its allies are war-weary. They didn't really win in Iraq. If anyone won in Iraq, it was Iran. Uh, they've lost in Afghanistan. And in the UK, we've had British ministers clearly indicating that if there were another scenario like Afghanistan in 2006, the last thing they do is send a British brigade to hold ground there. The Afghanistan situation, certainly to the West, is the most totemic of recent conflicts. Will it have an impact on the overall picture when you do this survey in a year's time, in five years' time? I think it will. The Taliban victory will greatly encourage violent extremists, particularly jihadists, because the Taliban will claim that they have twice defeated superpowers, Russia and then the United States. So it will be greatly encouraging for jihadists. And those countries in the region who are very worried that ungoverned space in Afghanistan might be used by terrorists acting against them are going to be very concerned. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see in a year's time whether the Taliban have lived up to their pledges with regard to international terrorists. Retired Brigadier Ben Barry from the IISS. Well, let's focus in on one country where the UK has intervened in terms of helping stabilise an internal conflict. It's five years since Britain sent a military team to Somalia to train Somali forces. Somalia is a country that has been in crisis for decades. And in recent weeks, the situation has become significantly worse, with the UN calling for calm and Britain saying it is deeply concerned by the situation. The political battle risks strengthening militants who are linked to al-Qaeda. I've been talking to Omar Mahmoud, a senior analyst covering Somalia for the International Crisis Group. He told me how this latest crisis centres on a fallout between Somalia's president and prime minister. As the prime minister has taken a greater role, he's diverged from the president on a number of issues. And we've increasingly seen this divergence just kind of uh, emerge over the past few months and something that's accelerated over the past few weeks to the point where really uh, they've completely broken. And, and, and the breaking point at this particular moment was a kind of complicated case, which involved a missing intelligence officer from the National Intelligence Services who had been gone for two months. Um, there'd been a lot of protests about her disappearance, a lot of suspicion around this. And the intelligence agency came out and said she'd been killed by Al-Shabaab, which the Al-Shabaab movement immediately denied. And so it threw the question back on the intel agency. And that's when the prime minister kind of stepped in as there was a lot of public pressure around this and, and really facilitated the break with the president. How does that one case lead to a, to a break between the country's two most important people? The head of the National Intelligence Agency, or the previous head, was a, a figure that's very close to the president. And this case somewhat implicates him as, as the head of the intelligence agency. And so when the prime minister 
demanded uh, an explanation from the intelligence agency really aggravated that sort of tension uh, between them, particularly because this is such a close ally of the president. And then there's the elections that were planned for earlier this year that didn't happen. You know, it, it's been a long struggle to get these elections up and running uh, because there's been a dispute over what the model was going to be, first of all, and then around the implementation of it. And, you know, I, I think you could say basically all sides at some point have, have played a role in why these elections haven't happened just yet. Um, you know, there, there was, uh, you know, I think an interest on the presidency side to extend their term as well. And that was something they tried and, and was pushed back against. Um, and, and so, you know, then it comes down to these elections, which we have to understand are not direct elections, but indirect elections, meaning that, um, you know, sub-clan members basically wind up selecting the representatives, you know, certain amount of sub-clan members. And, and so in that indirect model, there's a lot of room for manipulation of that. Is there a fear that this political crisis, this democratic crisis, helps Al-Shabaab, the militant group that has so much power there. Absolutely. Anytime you see this level of political infighting uh, between the political elite in, in Somalia, that's something Al-Shabaab can take advantage of in, in two ways, I'd say. You know, one, it very much paints into the narrative Al-Shabaab portrays of the federal government that these are elites that are not concerned about you, that, that, that are you know, implanted here from abroad, that are very weak in, in trying to divide the country. And you know, when you see that level of infighting, the tit-for-tat maneuvers, it's very hard to argue against that. And the second part of that is you know, anytime you have this degree of political tension, it also distracts from the actual physical battle against al-Shabaab. And so whether that's moving forces in sort of different ways and opening up areas that al-Shabaab can take advantage of, or whether it's that security uh, personnel are very much, you know, facing off against each other uh, rather than, than al-Shabaab as well, that that's a, something they can exploit. So absolutely, these types of political crises play exactly into al-Shabaab's hands. Umar Mahmoud from the International Crisis Group. Professor Michael Clark, last year Donald Trump ordered the withdrawal of the bulk of American personnel in Somalia. Britain's only got a few dozen people on the ground training. And yet Somalia is seen as such a key battleground against Islamist extremism. Yes, and that battleground is getting bigger all the time. I mean, you're right, the, the Operation uh, Tangum is the British operation, about 60-odd uh, personnel training uh, about a battalion's worth during this year. I mean, maybe 600 troops. They're training them in company strength uh, and with basic infantry skills and some of them taken out for officer training skills. But it's a drop in the ocean compared to the problem. And as Omar Mahmoud said, I mean, most of the problems that he focused on there are internal problems for Somalia's constitutional crisis, but externally as well, whereas a year ago, Ethiopia... Uh, under uh, Abiy Ahmed, the, the uh, prime minister of Ethiopia, was playing a very constructive role. Ethiopia is now involved in its own civil war with Tigray. Uh, prime Minister Ahmed is not now the darling of the West in the way that he was. And so Somalia is, is not now subject to the same stabilizing influences that it was uh, getting from Ethiopia over the border. And Al-Shabaab, it, it's been there for a long time, doesn't go away. And it, it, its power waxes and wanes. But at the moment, its power is undoubtedly increasing. What we do seem to be seeing from 
the West, from the likes of particularly the US, but also the UK, could be seen as a, a view that we've intervened in other internal conflicts, and frankly, it's not done anybody any good. Are we really better off just staying out of all this? Yeah, well, the issue is, of course, we can't stay out of it insofar as international terrorism affects all of the Western countries. Um, but the, the Western world is undoubtedly on the back foot. The Western allies, led by the United States, are having a pretty bad time at the moment. So um, all of the forces against those uh, our countries now feel as if they're uh, making progress, they're cock-a-hoop. And undoubtedly, what happened in Iraq, what's happened now in Afghanistan, will help inspire jihadists to recruit more strongly into these areas. Well, let's come back to UK soil and uh, a very different security question. Fears of a European energy crisis intensifying this week because of spiralling prices and some small energy suppliers in the UK going out of business. Now, at this point, this is a crisis of cost, not supply. And there are a few reasons that this is happening. A surge in demand in Asia, for example. Another factor, though, Russia's move over the summer to slow its delivery of natural gas. That has led some to suggest that Moscow could be using energy supply as a weapon, perhaps to destabilise European nations as they begin economic recovery from the pandemic. Elizabeth Braw is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She's been telling Paul Osborne that concerns about Europe's reliance on Russian energy are nothing new. It happened during the Cold War as well. In fact, that was one of Reagan's, Ronald Reagan's major sort of annoyances with West Germany, that, that West Germany was happy to let the Soviets build a pipeline to transport gas to West Germany. We are in a, a similar situation today that yes, it, it is a vulnerability. And now I think we'd all love to know what's going on in, in, in the inner circles of, of the Kremlin to, to learn whether they decided that they should use energy as, as a weapon against Europe. I don't think it's, it's that easy. I think it's, it's a combination of various factors. Both the, the, the energy crunch and the shipping crunch demonstrate uh, the vulnerabilities of, of these respective supply chains and demonstrate how a malicious actor could exploit them if that actor wanted to. How long do you think those major European countries have had these vulnerabilities and why haven't they done anything about them before? Well, because people like you and me and everybody else want to have a convenient life. Energy consumption keeps growing in our countries and we don't have... Uh, a credible or a workable or a viable alternative to these traditional forms of energy. Renewable energy is growing, but it's not uh, widespread enough and not cheap enough where it can be the sole source of our energy needs. So in the meantime, we have to keep going with these traditional forms of, of energy that makes us dependent on the countries that, that, that have those resources that we don't. And of course, those resources involve oil from countries that may likewise wish to do us harm. So you could, in effect, spin increased investment in renewable energy as not just a way of limiting harm to the environment, but also as a way of building domestic resilience in energy supply. Oh, absolutely. 
absolutely. So renewable, I mean, it's there for everybody. No country has an advantage or a disadvantage. Mother Nature is here for anybody, for everybody. And I'm not trying to make this a sort of a, um, a granola or hippie issue, but really it, it is a resource for everybody. And investing in, in renewable energy is the right thing to do to try to avoid the climate crisis. And it's also a way of keeping the country safe from um, malicious actors. So it, it really is the only way out of our double predicament, exposure to hostile actors and the even more serious threat of, of a climate crisis. Elizabeth Braw speaking to Paul Osborne. Mike Clark, could this become something that Russia sees an opportunity to use as a, a grey zone threat, a disruptive action b- below the threshold of traditional conflict? Oh, yes, I think that's exactly the way the Kremlin now sees it. I mean, remember that, the, as Elizabeth Braw said, the Russians were doing this uh, up to the period of the, um, the great financial crisis of 2008, when gas prices were high, they were manipulating the gra- gas supply into Ukraine every winter in order to put pressure on the other European uh, consumers who took their pipelines through Ukraine. And uh, although there are many reasons why there is this particular gas and energy crisis at the moment, one of the variables in that is that the Russians have reduce their gas supply to Europe, particularly because they want the Germans to um, agree the Nord Stream pipeline. I mean, the pipeline is finished. It just needs certification so it can start flowing. And so the Russians are now making a very crude case for saying you need this Nord Stream pipeline because look what's happening to your gas supplies. And one of the reasons that's happening is because they've reduced their gas supplies by over a third deliberately. And this is the sort of crude manipulation that the Kremlin does go in for it usually doesn't make that much difference, but sometimes it can be the critical as a element, the, the, the sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back and takes a, an economic crisis into the realms of a political crisis, which is more or less where we are now. We're just on the cusp between a, a market failure problem and a real political crisis in Europe over energy supplies. Mike, thank you. Finally, this week marks 40 years since Belize gained its independence from the UK. Formerly called British Honduras, the country may be independent, but British forces never entirely left. Now, as Hannah King reports, there is a chance our presence in this small Central American country could in fact be about to increase. Breakfast. It's 6.30am and we're headed for the jungle. So we're on our way down to Manatee Training Area at the moment. Major Jamie Hall is here with his team from Sandhurst for a month, delivering training to the Belize Defence Force, the Belize Coast Guard and the Belize Police. The jungle area is, is, is vast and you won't see that when you're in there because all you see is a few metres to your left and right uh, and the canopy covers your, your view of the sky quite a lot. When you go by air and you realise how long you've been flying for over just the same canopy uh, for you know, an hour or two, that's when you realise the, the scale of uh, uh, how, how big the jungle is in, in Belize. There are, in fact, 5,000 square miles of pristine jungle for the British to play with. Let's go, let's go. As a training facility for jungle yes, warfare is exceptional. And they say if you can fight in the jungle, you can fight anywhere. In March 2021, the Ministry of Defence said the British Army was set for a radical transformation. It was to become more agile, more expeditionary, designed to operate globally, exploiting existing global land hubs. One such land hub is Belize. 
This could mean more soldiers being based in the country for longer periods. Batsub could be set to get rather busier. It's going to be an evolution, not a revolution. Commander of the British Army Training Support Unit Belize, Lieutenant Colonel Simon Nichols, says they'd be ready. We are trying to get after quick wins in terms of making sure our infrastructure is uh, ready to support. We're the uh, only toehold here in the Americas, really. Uh, Belize is the only English-speaking Central American but Caribbean-facing country that has had no civil unrest. And we are well-placed here to complement the activities of other partners in the region. It's a great opportunity if we've got soldiers here to be able to take our place and play our part in supporting our host nation. Oh, my God! The threat to Belize from Guatemala is a disagreement only amongst politicians. There are no divisions amongst the people. Children go to school across the border. Villages are split in two by the country divide, but the communities live as one. And whilst there's no imminent threat of invasion, their claim to the land is ongoing. In 2019, the people of Guatemala voted to send the matter to the International Court of Justice. Belize has until 2022 to respond before the court decides who the country belongs to. Brigadier General Stephen Ortega is the commander of the Belize Defence Force. Guatemala has the largest military in this region and they have a claim to us. We have the smallest military in this region and so there's always that aspect of that overwhelming effect that they can have on us. So we're always prepared and we continuously to prepare to defend this country with what we have. We believe that We'll put up a credible defence. Yes, the numbers might be small, but the heart is very big. And I believe the heart will take us quite a long way. Exactly what lies in store for Belize is yet to be revealed. But the old base is ready to grow once again. And the Belize Defence Force look forward to perhaps having a few more Brits around. Hannah King reporting from Belize. And that is it for this week's Sit Rep. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and all of our guests. You can, of course, keep in touch with us on Twitter. We are at BFBS Sit Rep. We're also online at bfbs.com slash sit rep. There you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, James Hurst, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. thinking alex we should do a podcast how about cooking too overdone ghosts too scary education oh too learny love island too just too what we need al is a complete life changer of a podcast relatable current engaging forward thinking and very very sexy how about old military aircraft why didn't you say? Whatever you do, don't work on an aircraft that doesn't have a toilet. I, I don't think you ever got over that feeling. You couldn't see what was happening, but you knew you were very close to the ground and you were trusting a piece of engineering to keep you safe and alive. Join us each week for Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession where we will be full on geeking out with the people who flew them, fixed them, loved them and even hated them. We're not just Av Geeks, we're Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession.